What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from IndieHackers.com, and you're listening to the Indie Hackers podcast. More people than ever are building cool stuff online and making a lot of money in the process. And on this show, I sit down with these indie hackers to discuss the ideas, the opportunities, and the strategies they're taking advantage of so the rest of us can do the same. It's good to have you back on the pod, man. It's been a while. For folks who don't know you, you're Vincent Wu. You've been on the podcast a few times. Oh, wait, are we recording? <laughs> yeah, we're recording, man. This is okay, it. It's live. Okay. Welcome to the show. Uh... What's your background? You started a company called CoderPad, which you sold for, for tens of millions of dollars. Uh, can we still not say the exact amount you set, you sold it for? Is that yeah? I don't. Taboo? I think I'm allowed to say when the current company is sold to a new buyer, okay. and then I negotiate to have the secrecy clause expire at that time. But this may never happen, so I have no idea. They just bought another company. So, like, I don't know. Like, they're going strong. Are you tracking this? Like, when you sell your company and it, you're no longer involved, like, how much are you just tracking what happens to your baby? N- not at all. I have no idea what goes just, on. You just wash your hands. It's like you've given your baby up for yeah, adoption. Yeah. Are you even interested? Oh, I'm very interested. They just don't like to talk to me anymore. Uh, I saw a photo from their all hands in Portugal, and there's, like, 80 people. They bought this French company, and then they, like, had an all hands, like, sort of in the middle in Portugal. Not really. And there's like 80 people, and I know like one or two of them in the photo. And I'm just like astounded. It's couple, like my kid grew it. up or something. Yeah, changed it. Yeah. It's all adults yeah. now. You know, it's weird. Like they have kids. If we if we sold Indie Hackers to an acquirer that wanted to take over, that kicked us out, they said, all right, we're going to take the wheel, I would be fascinated. And the f- changes to the forum, I'd be really interested to see what they did. So I can't imagine pulling back. Yeah, what what Stripe employee would be like next in line if like the two of I you literally died, have like, no idea. They? Literally no idea. No clue. Yeah, do you think sometimes that Stripe forgets that it owns indie hackers? Maybe Stripe as an organization does. Like there are people within Stripe who are like, oh yeah, we were doing this thing company wide and forgot about you guys. But I don't think like the people who matter, like Patrick, has not forgotten. He's well oh, aware. do you like not get invited to some of the all hands or something? Like, the- <laughs> I mean, we were sort of explicitly instructed to like don't don't do any of the big company bullshit. Do we your get own invited? Thing. Yeah, we, we can may- join whatever I, we want. But the whole point I, is like I, to not I've be gotten, distracted by that. I've gotten sales emails from salespeople at Stripe, so they definitely don't <laughs> all know that we're a part of Stripe. I got a, uh, a recruiter email. Um, from somebody at Stripe once, which is, I thought, hilarious. You should go through the interview process. <laughs> that, you know, see how long it takes. See if you can negotiate a better deal. <laughs> like, the market has changed, you know? Like, you never know. Anyway, you sold your company. Uh, now you're just a, a rich ex-indie hacker. I don't know what you're up to nowadays. Waking up at noon, sipping on your coffee. Yeah. D- like, drugs. Yeah. DM- DMT. Totally. I really ought to do more DMT, which is the thing I find myself saying pretty often sort of surprisingly because nothing's really stopping me from doing as much dmt as my heart desires but i don't like i haven't done it in months you know i I think because it is still like a somewhat intimidating experience even though it's like totally pleasant every time beforehand i'm like oh man like am i in the right zone to do dmt right now and the answer like probably technically is like yeah i think at any time like i'm in the right what's the right zone to do dmt but like it's hard to describe. I don't. I don't want to use the word scary, but that's the word that like punches the sort of uh, like hesitation that I have. 
like it can be a little scary to actually dose DMT. Like in the describe describe a DMT phase. trip because I agree with you. I've never actually done DMT, but I'm afraid of it. Like I put it in the same category of like as like ayahuasca, oh. where it's like I don't know if I want to ever do this. Well, ayahuasca would probably make you throw up. DMT is actually totally pleasant. Like ayahuasca is DMT, by the way. It's DMT taken with uh, MAOI, which like basically makes the DMT trip like last a long time as opposed to merely like 15 minutes. So the thing that's scary about DMT, I don't know, like from an objective standpoint, there's absolutely nothing scary about it. Like the incidence rates of bad trips are like near zero. Like it lasts 15 minutes, so you can never be stuck and you're like totally sober again at the end. It's actually really pleasant. The only thing that's sort of scary is that you have to like create a mental mantra to get you through actually being able to inhale it. Because like you basically have to inhale like three lungfuls of like vaporized DMT. And by the second one, you're already losing, like you, you stop being able to see so good, like pretty quick. And then you're like, you're, you're just like saying very it's physically quick. difficult <laughs> to do this. No, it's mentally, you have to remember. Sounds terrifying. Because your your mind is going, too. Like, you're entering the DMT realm. It's hard to You're losing your mind, and at the same time, you're still trying to finish doing the DMT. Yeah. And also, physically, you're sort of going to, right? You're stopping being able to see so clearly, too. So, like, it's all this stuff. Like, you have to really sort of gird yourself in the beginning to actually consume the dose well. And then after that, you can kind of trance out. And even though that process only takes like a minute, like it does feel like, man, you got to really like, you got to go. But what about it, like the next you know? 15 minutes? Are those in any way scary? But also it's, it's 15 minutes objectively, but subjectively, does it feel like 15 minutes? Uh, honestly, probably it feels like less than 15 minutes. I feel like it goes quickly, actually. I feel like the hard part is actually remembering everything that occurred during those 15 minutes. Like it, it's all sort of dreamlike, you know? Anyway, yeah. I came on this show to evangelize DMT. This is like a Silicon, so I hope like a Silicon Valley Bay Area thing, right? Like what, the first thing I noticed when I moved to SF was every single coffee shop, people were talking about tech. Like you couldn't get away from conversations about tech. And then everybody did hallucinogens. It's like a, it's a run of the mill thing. It's like getting a drink. It's not the overlap that you would guess. It's like polyamory, hallucinogens, and tech startups. Well, I would say, one, you get a, you're getting a very specific bubble slice of San Francisco. Like, I meet tons of people who live here and are deeply involved in the city who fight me tooth and nail for the right to never do drugs, which, of course. you know, whatever, it's their right. I would say that, like, that's the normal thing. But I think if you, I don't know, if you're, like, a young tech guy and you know a bunch of other people just like you, yeah, you'll totally meet a bunch of people who do hallucinogens. I wanted to say that I did... I sort of understood Joe Rogan better uh, once I did DMT because he, he like constantly evangelizes it. And he's also kind of a knucklehead. And I just didn't really like for a long time. I just thought like that was just like a weird quirk of like Joe Rogan or whatever. But then I did DMT a few times and I was like, oh, like I get it. Like I understand why someone would constantly and socially awkwardly bring up the topic of DMT in any social circumstance. Well, this is you now. Immediately on the pot. Yeah, on the podcast. and I sort of became... DMT evangelism. Yeah, exactly, right. You're basically Joe Rogan. So me and Joe Rogan are actually best friends now, and we hang out all the time. <laughs> the, uh, I feel like the the life that's open to you is like, a, I don't know, financially independent ex-indie hacker. You can do anything you want. Uh, Channing and I, I guess, what did you tell me the other week? We're like similar. We read productivity books and talk about like things we can build, and you're like... 
I don't know, doing art, making pots and doing DMT? Why, why is that like the choice? Do you have a broader philosophy for how you're living your life? Practically speaking, like if a random human has a life philosophy, like how did they get it? Like what happened to them that they thought like that the right thing to do was attempt to codify like a sort of like written sort of logic based rules for how to do living in, in the general sense. And I've met quite a few people like this. I would say they often are proud of like the fact that they've read some Marcus Aurelius or something or they're like into Seneca <laughs> or whatever. Like they tend to be like Leaders. stoic adjacent. And I would say like this maybe isn't even that bad. I, I would say that there probably is like a group of people for whom my intuition is that life seems so chaotic and so directionless or devoid of like meaningful feedback that the only like bulwark they can erect feasibly in their like inner spiritual life is to like codify literally like a set of rules for living whereas i think i don't know like if you're if your life is going well and you're having a good time you you have no incentive to develop a philosophy the reason i'm curious about this is because i think that like okay obviously me and channing are in the situation you're in the situation i know a lot of people in this situation and i like reflecting on like why people do the things that they do and to some degree it feels like what you're saying is like you shouldn't be intentional about how you live or what you're doing and it's like almost like life should just happen to you and ideally things are good. I'm being a little bit flippant. I think that what you're saying makes sense, but that there's like a paradox here, which is that I think most life philosophies are bullshit. I think that the stories that we impose on our lives are bullshit. I think that there's a lot of chaos. Like the truth of the universe is, you know, entropy is expanding, chaos is 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 like spreading and that applies to our lives as well. Um, and our attempts to like do these things where we create stories about ourselves and like, this is my identity or this is my religion, or this is like, you know, sort of, this is the rainbow, the arc that I'm on where I'm starting a business. Now I'm free and, and I'm working on the next mountain. Um, I think that those are two things that are kind of contradictory. Number one, I think that they're not objectively true. And then number two, I think that they tend to be like useful. They tend to help the, make us more robust people. They tend to sort of keep us motivated. So on the one hand, I, I agree with you. If you, if everything is like, this fun roller coaster, then like why why necessarily change? Why just impose? Well, Channing, okay, let me interrupt you for a second. You are one of the most like life philosophy based people that I know. Mm -hmm. You are extremely focused on having a life philosophy. You have it written down. You have codes oh, that wait. you would buy. Is that true? Yeah. Channing, what's your life philosophy? In a, yeah. in a way, though. In a way. Now you just have to tell everyone. No, what's I'm not your life run philosophy? Away from it. Don't get don't get me wrong. I'm not gonna run away from it. But I think that <laughs> so the, the the extent to which I'll distance myself from this is is I'm not like a, what do you call it? Maybe we call it a philosophy maximalist. I don't really believe that I'm in the story that I, that I create for myself, but I'm really into psychology and I've like tried on a lot of hats and I've tried different ways of, of approaching life. Like what specifically, what is your life philosophy? Uh, let's take just myself. No matter what, I'm always going to place a constraint on myself that, that I need to continually try to create, try to like improve the world around me. Like what, like what, whatever it is, whatever, like, you know, mountain I'm trying to climb, whether it's a, a problem in my own life, whether it's it deals with other people, whether it's a, a business or, or whatever this, the situation is, if I, if I find myself in a situation where I don't have like something that's truly challenging and, you know, isn't a problem that I'm really chewing on, then red flags start going off even before maybe I start feeling like ennui or I start feeling like sort of listless and, you know, bored about stuff. Because it almost always follows downstream. 
and like you know it's it's been somewhat cyclical i think we're we're not maybe in the exact same situation as you but like we don't necessarily have to wake up and work on indie hackers every single day for, for like financial or, or other kinds of freedom ways um and just trying different hats i've found that like a hat that involves uh, a a kind of philosophy i heard a really good quote that i follow which is like to live a good life live a good story and I like to write. I like the idea of stories. And the first thing you'll know, notice about any good story is that if you read a story and there's no bad guy, there's no antagonist, there's nothing bad happening, you put the story down. You're like, why am I reading this shit? This is super boring. And yet, if you apply that to yourself, which I do, like at a almost like philosophical level, that means that when you don't have a problem, like you proactively go in search of problems, go looking for them. Um, and so I you think always want to have problems. This, is basically what yeah, and and I think well, that I think that wait, one of the can things I, that, can I ask a question? Yeah, go I'm ahead. curious about. Do you feel like had you not like consciously thought all these thoughts about how to like explain what you're explaining right now that you would have not otherwise done like a lot of the things that you've done? I think that at a, at barest minimum, the things that I've done that I care about, um, I would have done at a much slower pace. And the main thing that I like about this, the main thing that I like about going in search of monsters to fight, even when there's none like destroying your home village, is that it's like the it's almost like the best way to a learn things about yourself and like learn other interesting shit to go get involved in. I think that like the externalities, I think that the the, the main thing and I don't know, this gets kind of theoretical and maybe I can think of uh, concrete examples, but like. You, you, for example, you can't really empathize. It's harder to empathize with people that you, where you haven't like felt their pain. You haven't like done the things that they're doing. Yeah, totally. Um, and like I you think need, that I often like tell founders that they need to be like loose in the world to generate good ideas, right? Like that there's no way to like sit in a box and like, right. come up with an idea about reality. So I guess like what I'm finding is that I'm agreeing with everything that you're saying. I've just never considered these to be like components of like philosophy. <laughs> If you automatically create, the word. if you automatically find problems that are interesting to you, and like it could be like, hey, I want to try this DMT. That's going to be wild. That makes me sort of anxious, and maybe I'm going to find some stuff. If if you're constantly peopling your world with, I don't know, interesting like sort of stressful, you know, stimulating events, then and you don't have a problem not doing that. Then I I, I I can understand not appreciating like why would someone do that. Okay, Cortland, he sold yeah. me. I now subscribe to the Channing <laughs> Allen life philosophy. <laughs> Uh, what I'm hearing is the highest virtue is that you ought to do things, which I like actually totally agree with. Like, I wonder if that's in Jordan Peterson's rules for life, you know, like, is it like number five? Just like, it's, do not, stuff? it's like, uh, what is that? It's like, uh, Stephen Covey, seven habits of highly effective people. I don't know who that He's is. Like a, and I don't uh, want guru. to. If you, don't if you read me. any self-help don't tell book, me. read the seven habits of highly effective people. I'm going to tell I'm you. I'm not going to do that. If, if you no. do, that's what you should read. Let's talk about, uh, this NFT bet. Oh, yeah. We want to explain to the readers. Yeah. Uh, I've got a little note in my Google Calendar. October 26, 2021. This is so, this is so fucking Cortland Allen and Vincent Wu. Odds 10 to 1 in Cortland's favor. Amount $1,000 to Vincent Fuck. if he wins. $10,000 to Cortland if he wins. The terms. I'm so sad that this is a podcast and people only hear you. The but terms. They don't see you right now. <laughs> the terms. Will any AAA game studio mint an endgame item or accomplishment from one of their games? As an NFT by October 26, 2022. So a year from the start of the bet, I bet a AAA game studio would do that. You bet no. 
and your uh, extreme confidence, some might say arrogance, you gave me 10 to 1 odds. So if I lose, I pay you $1,000. Yeah, I gave you too good you of odds. You gave me crazy odds. odds. It was a, yeah, well, I wanted you to take the bet, so I really I could not. It, I wasn't know? going to take the bet until you gave me 10 to 1 odds. And yeah, then I got trapped. Only a few months later, Ubisoft, uh, those brilliant those brilliant game developers at Ubisoft, decided to put a, <laughs> a, an extremely crappy... Yeah, the fam- famously confident yeah, They make Ubisoft amazing games. Game studio. They already shut down their NFT experiment uh, last month, by the way. It lasted four months. But they put NFTs into oh, uh, something like Ghost Recon, some sort of Ghost Recon game. They botched it. They did the worst version of NFTs I've ever heard of. It was not interoperable with like any major blockchain. It's crappy. It was completely underused. They sold like literally like a double digit number of these NFTs. Also, okay, so like the reason this is even a thing that we're speaking about at this very moment is because Cortland and I became like uh, entwined in a debate as as to like effectively like whether NFTs have like sort of any uh, real life utility. Yeah, at all in any way, <laughs> and I am. Uh, I am a skeptic in so much as like I could not conceive of like and Cortland was especially interested in video games for some reason I could not conceive of any like useful application of NFTs in the video game dimension that would not better be achieved by like a video game company like making an API or like open sourcing something for instance yeah. right in so much as my theory is that like you know, like what NFTs and the blockchain is in general is a way of solving like the Byzantine generals problem, like computation that can be verified in the face of adversarial computing. And, you know, like video games are like pretty easy, like in my estimation, right? Like generally, <laughs> like if you want to make a mod or you want to like share some yep. assets, like you can just do that. Yeah, There's yeah. very little preventing you from doing that. But like Cortland was really into the idea that like, Users taking ownership of like things that might like represent skins or something in game would somehow create like a new modality of beingness or whatever, <laughs> like in what? in video games, and that there would be okay. applications that we like could not conceive. No, this is I think I'm summarizing accurately, right? Like that there could be applications that we could not even yet conceive. Okay, like, so as I don't a result, sure, necessarily know that much about NFTs, but just like yeah, just what is confusing but, about this? Let me help you. Well, well, but just so for example, the only idea that I can think of. For like how that would happen is maybe if you have an NFT of a you play one video game you play you know the, the Mario character or whatever and then you might want to take that Mario skin into another video game is that the kind of crazy yeah 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 like you earn you earn a skin or Cortland a trophy or a pitching. sword and then you play another video game and they recognize that you've earned this crazy. in one game and they give you a representation of that in their game so wait how much do you if own again how much what how much money Whoa, is, hey. is that? Like, Vincent owes me ten thousand hey, dollars. Come on, you bet oh, nobody would away? take this. Channing, you bet nobody would hey, take this seriously. Hey, slow. Hey, come on, Channing, go easy. All right, like. Fuck, so the real man. question is, I don't care if uh, I don't care if my my mm. prediction of where the world would go is accurate. I have no idea. That was we were talking about like ten years out, but one year out, I said somebody would take this seriously enough to try. Somebody major, AAA game studio. In, in, yeah, if that was your literal statement, then you're absolutely correct, right? Like, That's what I was willing to put money on. I turned to one out. Right. The, the real question is, how do I get? How do I collect my money? At what point? I'll send it to you when you want uh, it today. Well, <laughs> as soon as possible. I'll, I mean, I'll ask for some clemency. Look, here's an here's an argument for clemency. I say, like, <laughs> in the spirit of the bet. Spencer, you sold your company for tens okay. of millions of dollars. I'm I'm begging for a discount here, like. In the spirit of clemency, I would have paid you a thousand dollars if I lost. I would have one hundred percent Venmoed you a thousand bucks. Hey, okay. Well, the spirit of the bet is sort of about 
you're, you're right, there was like a literal bet, but there's also like the, you know, the spirit of the law here, right? And I was trying to make a point about like the fundamental uselessness of these things, right? Like that if you ever, if you were like the IP owner of some game skins, uh-huh. you would never, you would never make an NFT of like your in-game IP that conveyed any sort of legal right to use that IP because it will be immediately like you will immediately destroy the value of your brand by doing so. And, you know, video game creators are very, well, some of them more so than others, but generally very, like, thoughtful. Like, it, it, it takes, like, five years to make this IP. They pay, like, hundreds of artists and story writers. Yep. This is incredibly precious content, and it cannot, like, be trusted, like, to the vagaries of the internet, effectively. The lawyers okay, never but, like, market forces, if, it, like, in... in theory if you if this became popular like let's just suppose this became popular wouldn't that then be but if it did wouldn't that then be a competitive pressure where you like you know oh you know you know your competitor game your competitor battle royale fortnite style game allows you to sort of use your nft character and then someone else you're saying if we were trapped in the local nash equilibrium that was equivalent (laughs) to hell yeah like i guess then we would all be incentivized to act like demons but like that would never happen. I mean, we can do like it. How about this? We're in a circular logic. I deny you clemency for this bet. We can make another bet, <laughs> okay. and we can put this one further out. I'll do. How about five years? And I'll give you. Okay. I'll give you one to give me one to three odds. One to ten was insane. On what? On whether or not. I mean, I want something that, 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 that like actually aligns with the spirit of what you're trying to say. Because whether or not. Well, the spirit is like there is a like social convention where it is somewhat common for popular video games to have licensed out some like real component of their game IP as NFTs or whatever the next word that replaces NFTs. Yeah, I agree to this. Called. Give me one to three odds. We'll do the same, like $1,000 if I lose, I'll pay you $3,000 if I win. Five years from now, I'll put it in a Google Calendar. All right, done. We'll concretize done. the terms. You, you the put spirit it of what you just said, I yeah. totally, yeah, I'll take that bet for sure. NFTs are fucking dead. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. I think that the prices third party are, observer. I think the prices that's are down. so vague. There's no, no, no. no we'll like... concretize it. We'll concretize it. Okay, I know what he's. Okay, I know what okay, he's okay. saying. Like he's saying that they won't be useful. Uh-huh. Like we, we both at this we moment experience the sense of we understand we each, each other. other. Okay. Five years from now, we'll see whether that's still the case. <laughs> but it's I think, recorded. Yeah, it's on we record. Have a, we have a shot at concretizing it some way, as you put it. Channing, where are you on this one? Do you want a sidecar bet on it? I this? want absolutely no part of this, but I'm enjoying. Yeah, being a that's fly the, the sane response. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh-huh. this is stupid. I mean, fundamentally, this is stupid. Let's talk about. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about Hidakazu. Uh, Hidakazu. Who? Remember, this is the guy you introduced me to over Gmail. Like, oh yeah. Oh god. I'm sorry, Hide. I didn't mean that. That to come across <laughs> that way. Should we edit out where you forgot who he was? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Please, thank uh, you. You sent me an email. Let me find it. Uh, it was on, I rarely get emails from you, and it was just uh, yeah. I don't really send emails. I really don't. And it was an introduction. And so Cortland Hidekazu. Hey Cortland, I just talked to this guy Hide. It was nice. He wants more perspective on starting a business, and it'd be great if you could just chat with him for a bit. Take it away. Uh, and I had uh, also a very pleasant call with him, and it got me thinking about. Uh, number one, just giving advice in general. Number two, like as an indie hacker, anyone in the world, like why do you do the things you do? Why do you want to start a company in the first place? And there's certain things you told him that like I think he said that I disagreed with. Like we gave him almost polar opposite advice in some areas. I think I th- that's why I sent him to you, yeah. I think. I, I, do you remember what you told him? Like one of the things I remember was that he's, you told him that I guess he came away from his conversation with you trying to figure out if he should be an indie hacker and the best way to start. He came away thinking... I learned from Vincent that 
the reason I want to start a company is because I'm deeply unhappy. <laughs> and well, that's what he told yeah, me. Yeah, it was like a therapy session. So I'm curious, like, how your conversation went with him. Well, yeah. Whenever I like, I don't very often get calls like that, and I think you probably get them a lot more than I do. But like, sometimes like a somewhat estranged founder or fledgling founder, like, wants to talk to me for some weird reason, and I'm not very famous, so it's usually like. I'm usually surprised that anyone wants to talk to me for this reason. And, like, they're almost always someone who, like, listened to previous podcasts we made. I don't know. Anyway, what I always try to do is, like, figure out, like, why they want to... I try to figure out why they're doing what they're doing. And I guess I do have a life philosophy about this. I'm surprising myself. That, like, if you are trying to start a company because you think you ought to start a company, I feel like you ought not to start a company. Like, there should, in my view, be only one reason to start a company, which is you have a good idea for a company, right? Like, because that's what it takes to make a company work. Like, the company has to make sense. Like, starting a company before you have an idea for a company, to me, sounds like that would be, it's sort of similar to, like, paying McKinsey, to figure out what your business model is. You know what I mean? It's just like not possible. To use rune terms, there's like, there's alpha out there somewhere, right? And you have to be able to get it. Like the world's not gonna serve it to you on a platter. So like, I usually in these calls try to gently figure out like what motivated, when they first think of the idea of starting a company, like where are they now? Like what's, what's pushing them one way or the other? Like what's dissatisfactory about their current experience and so forth? Or like, what do they think, like, if it goes badly in a year, like, what do they think they, like, will they regret what they've done? Like, that sort of thing. And, yeah, I think through that, I was sort of of the impression that, like, he should just have more friends. Like, I'm just, like, <laughs> hanging out with people in real life. I think a, a lot of the motivational access would be sort of blunted, which I think is sort of ironic. I, I do think a lot of founders, like, start as somewhat lonely people just because, Lonely people can afford to, like, obsess about, like, company building more. But I don't think that's necessarily good for them as a population net out, yeah. averaged across everyone. So I like that yeah. approach to giving advice. I mean, you're probably right. I get a lot more calls than you. But, I mean, I don't know. You also gave that, like, a pretty cool talk at Dropbox years and years ago after you started CoderPad about how to start a startup. And I remember watching that a long time ago and being like, oh, this Vincent guy is so fucking cool. Like, I wanted to call you and ask for advice on how to start a startup. So I'm not shocked that people are still reaching out to you. But I like the idea that you started with, like, why? Like, why are you even doing this? Because I think it's very easy when somebody asks for advice to just start telling people what they should do, which makes no sense if you don't understand anything about them. Like, theoretically, you can ask, like, why five times? Like, I want to start a company. Why? Because I want to be rich and successful. Why? Because... Oh, I would stop there, actually. If someone is emotionally aware enough to, like, literally say to the question, why do you want to start a company? I want to be rich. That's good enough for me, actually. Like, that's probably the best answer to why, for why you should start a company. Like, if... <laughs> I mean, it's like, practical. For, like, the motivating factor. It's very practical. Right? Like, because I want to make a bunch of money. Like, what else Like what else is the point of this, right? Like, that's okay, what it's... Okay, so this is where I, dis this is where I disagree with you. This that. is where I disagree with you. Because I think he told me, and I'm not sure if he's quoting you correctly or if I even remember what he said correctly, but he, I think he said, Vincent said that the point of a company is to make money. And that is the purpose of a business. Yeah. And I feel yeah. the polar opposite. I think that there's what? I think that there's a constraint. I think there's a constraint. Wait, what? I, I think there's a constraint. Okay. So I think a company, the way I define a company or a business is it's a project with a constraint that it has to sustain itself. So it, it needs to make enough money to keep itself going. But beyond that, it can be whatever the hell you want it to be. 
I feel like we said the same thing, but you used more words. I think you're saying that the point is to make money, which means that yes. if a push comes to shove, if you have a decision in your business, like you're generally going to err towards, let me do the thing that makes money because that's the purpose of what I'm doing. And the challenge I have with that it seems to wait, I don't your, I don't agree with that at all. What, I don't agree with here, that. Here, look, third 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 party, I think that there's a distinction between a constraint and a goal, and exactly. you both are conflating it. No, no, so, no, exactly. I think they're two it, different things. If it, if a thing has to do something as a it could do that thing as a bare minimum. Like I want to go to the store in a car, like I have to drive on the road. But like the purpose like driving on the road is like one of the things that I'm doing, but it's a constraint. Yeah, you have like, to do that, but it's not why to, you're going to the go store. To the store. Right. I, I feel we're actually trying to debate values here or something, right? Like yeah, you're right. Like I mean, technically speaking, yeah, you could define businesses that way. The question is like whether you ought to or not or like what the purpose of doing so is. I, I think you're better served by conceiving of your business as simply a thing that makes money. Well, here's an idea. So as an order, okay, go for well, it. I was going to say, because uh, when I think about businesses, when I think about, like, just taking myself, for example, um, I, like, my next mountain is I want to write novels. But I don't want to, like, give up all the freedom. Like, if I if I want to write a mainstream novel, I've already got a literary agent. He's talked to me. He's like, listen, you're not going to make any money. You have no freedom. Uh, you're going to sell the rights of your book to the to, to this one of the four big publishers. You, you don't get to choose the cover. You don't get to choose the title. You don't get shit, right? Shut up and like take the paycheck and then get back on the. You don't on get the to choose the title. You don't get to unless you're oh, Stephen shit. King. Unless you unless you've like you really really proven out. It's very similar to uh, to like startups. Um, publishers are basically investors. If you don't have a proven track record, if you haven't, if you don't have a, a huge past with a bunch of sales, a huge Twitter following, et cetera, they're like, we're not going to bet very much on you. You got $50,000 and shut up. You don't get any choice. So to me, the idea of, and I've been thinking about this for like 10 years before Indie Hackers. And I'm like, well, I want to create my own like indie publishing company, right? Because yeah, sure. I want to make money. I have to make money or else it's not worth it. But I want the freedom to like choose when I want to write. I want the freedom to like the fucking title of my book and the and you know what the cover image is like right if if i have the skills to bring that about and i think that that seems like if someone's like if someone comes to you and they're like hey i think i want to do this indie hacking thing uh well what you you ask what's your problem and they're like well fuck i you know i have this mainstream i have this 9 to 5 job um i get paid okay i guess but i don't get to choose anything about you know i don't get much choice in life and i have to kind of go in at 9 i have to leave at 5 I want to do things differently, but I want to make about the same amount of money. Is that not a good idea in your in in your estimation of like a good reason yeah, to start I, a business? I'm not saying you're wrong, and I think if you could jump to that like net outcome in reality for a lot of those people, that'd be great. But I caution against it. You know what I mean? Like I think people should evaluate their business purely through the lens of will it make money. I think it's really hard to do multi-dimensional like priority choosing. In business, like if you're getting some emotional juice, but you also maybe get a bit of money, like how do you weigh them against each other? It's like impossible, right? I think a lot of people who try to do that just end up getting caught in a local minimum where they don't make nearly as much as they used to at their regular nine to five. And I would think a lot of those people would be better off working a slightly more soulless job for a lot more money in the long term because they could work net less over their lifetime as a result. So like, I don't think these decisions are context or consequence free. I think it's actually, in a lot of ways, quite dangerous to start a company. And I think, you know, like people in our position are a little glib about starting them. But I, I think it's it behooves us actually to like caution founders somewhat against becoming founders, if that makes any sense, in cases where the utility looks marginal. And I think the best way to slice 
that sort of Gordian knot of like whether you ought to or not is to try to evaluate the idea as purely as like a money-making venture as possible. Because I think when you do that, the good ones will jump out at you, and the ones that seem eh, like it might make money become easier to pass on. And I think that net out is what best serves the pool of people who might become founders. I think that's, that's, true. I think that's I wise say- because, quite frankly, the vast majority of all companies fail. People greatly underestimate how difficult it is to just like make money. And I think a lot of founders that I've seen, when they quit their job or they start their company, they immediately go into this sort of freedom phase where they're like, I'm free. And then they just spend their time working like very few hours and doing other chores and hanging out with friends in the middle of the day. And like they haven't figured out how to make money yet. And then six months later, they're like out of cash and they're going back to their job. So like maybe as a sort of first order thing, like how is this going to make money makes sense. But at some point you hit like a threshold where you're basically financially independent, where your company sustains itself, it sustains you, it's fine. And it's very hard to get to that point. But at that point, I think you can do anything you want. Like with Channing and I, like one of oh, my yeah, biggest, totally. like one of my biggest, like I guess desires is like I want to spend more time around the people that I love, like my best friends, my family, and it's like now I have a podcast with my brother, and we can bring like my mom on the podcast and like talk to her, and it's like it would be very hard to have an excuse to like do this without a company, right? Or like people can like say like I really want to spend more time like I don't know talking Dude, to people. There are so many unemployed thirty-year-old dudes with podcasts. What are you talking? So many, about? right? Like anyone can right. do it. But okay, like how much time <laughs> for them is like a source of stress where it's like I've got to squeeze this in on nights and weekends. Or is our podcast? Like, you don't need money. the excuse of success to ha- go hang out with your mom. Yeah, just do it. Like you don't, you don't need to be rich to do it. Like people do it all the time. I agree, but I think that it's. I, I guess what I think is, companies are an underappreciated way to sort of force yourself to do certain things. I think people's jobs get them to do things they would never do. And sure, like if you have infinite self-discipline and self-control, you can make a list of all the things you want to do and just do it. But when your livelihood is tied to something, when your paycheck is tied to something, I think people like in practice are extraordinarily more likely to do that thing. Well, even with a company, you, you, can, start, you can start a side project, right? Like you can take the idea, um, you can like get those early, early reps, anything, anything that's hard to do. And all three of us will admit like, businesses are fucking hard like it requires a huge amount of training and you get some training doing a real job you do you get some training working on on the real business obviously but like you can sort of do that to an extent with side projects yeah, yeah of i course. mean coderpad literally was a side project and i didn't quit my job right away like i didn't quit until i was already making money so like i usually try to endorse this plan i also think it self sorts for the people who actually really want to do like any particular project right like if you want to do a project enough that you'll do it like after you're done working, like it's a pretty good sign that like there's something to it. Or it was people who are like waiting to start their thing until they clear their plate. I think of it as less serious in some way. Well, that's the challenge I think of having a business where the primary purpose of it is just have I found something that makes money? Because I talk to a lot of founders where they, they find something that makes money and then they get to the point where it's making lots of money. And then they've accomplished their goal and they like fucking hate every other part of their business. I'm like, I don't really like the life that I'm living. I don't like the people that I'm working with. I don't like the things that I'm doing. And they start to care a lot more about how they're spending their time and less about money. And so the holy grail, in my opinion, is to do something that not only makes money, but also gives you an excuse and maybe a kick in the ass to like do something that you would like to do more of. So that once you get to the point where it is making lots of money, you don't feel this overwhelming desire to quit because you don't like your life. Like DMT on weekends. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I agree with all that. Uh, I'm seeing in my calendar notes, I'm going to pivot. I'm, I see in my calendar notes that there is a, a bullet point with merely the question, how to make our podcast interesting? 
question mark. I know you got thoughts on Channing this. versus Cortland question mark. <laughs> and I want to hear more about. I want to hear this. more about this like, from you because you have opinions, and that's why I put this on here. Well, is this how many of this is the new format, right? How many have you done Three. so far? This is our third episode, or maybe our fourth. Three. Do they usually have people who aren't? We've you done on them? one with just me and Channing, and I think that's going to be our bread and butter. Most of our episodes will be just the two okay. of us. We've done, I think, no, two with me and Channing, and then two with guests. We had our mom on for Mother's Day, which was uh, a blast. Oh, you already did yeah, the mom, the mom episode. episode. It was cool. Oh, and, shit. Uh, yeah. We've got okay. this one. And we did one with Daniel Vasallo on Harvard Call that we recorded last week that I haven't listened to. I have no idea how it went. But, like, you're, yeah, I think you're like our fourth. Nice. Yeah, I think, I mean, I wanted to hear more about Channing versus Cortland. <laughs> I mean, so you've talked to both of us enough that you know that we like we both have strong opinions obviously we're brothers and we're both like at the same wheel of of one bus right i mean so <laughs> a lot of a lot of debating happens in my perspective channing is a very different person basis. than i am i think of channing as like the polar opposite person to me but from like an outsider's yeah. perspective i think we're very similar like vincent you're like marveling you know, i've, I've at thought how... both at different times yeah sometimes i've marveled at how similar you seem and other times, I've been like, whoa, these guys are totally different. <laughs> Is your point so ultimately sort of, think, that you think that we should turn this into a we debate each other <laughs> and no, just no, fight each other? Not. Well, no, I was just wondering if like that's happened. Because I haven't seen any of the new stuff yet. Mm. I'm like, really just curious, like, how can this work? Or like, what's it going to be? Like, I want to know just as like a listener, I guess. I think I texted Cortland something like, there's no alpha left in advice giving. Like, a lot of the pontificating we just did, I think, is almost, like, totally useless to anybody. But I think what is useful is, like, uh, like gossip and, uh, like, shitting on, like, strongman positions in, like, current events, effectively. Like so, what? like, there's, like, just a lot of stuff What's a strongman right? position? Like, all the time. I don't know, like you could debate stable coins, for instance, which I think are like a hugely important moral issue or whatever, like right now. Right. <laughs> Vincent, what are your opinions on Elon Musk and Twitter? Yeah, isn't that weird? Like that that's happening at all? Or like maybe like, it'll happen. I, I feel like it's really hard to have like a morally coherent position on Elon Musk in general. Because <laughs> it's like... The guy obviously has done things that seem pretty good for humanity, right? Like accelerating the electrification of like, uh, you know, vehicles in general. It's pretty good. At the same time, he kind of constantly defends like car centricity as like a public policy. And then also he's just kind of a lunatic on Twitter. So it's like hard just to evaluate. Like sometimes he seems to really struggle grasping basic information and i can't conceive of like how that can be like what like if you look at his tweets i don't know like he was just talking about someone asked like do you see that he recently complained about the twitter acquisition the bots. like he tried to fake back out because there are bots or something someone asked him what no sense either and then he listed his methodology yeah. for like <laughs> testing whether there were bots which involved like clicking a few pages down on his <laughs> followers tab and then just like looking at the profiles or something. Okay, but how do you tell and, if this isn't just three-dimensional chess? Like he's so yeah, I mean, trolly maybe that maybe he's just like, but how do you know? I can't, I mean, like I don't, I don't subscribe to that kind of, like if he gave some obvious indication that he's trolling for the fun of it, like then sure. But otherwise, like most people, obs well, like 
I think it's beside the point, right? Because most people will take his words somewhat literally, and like that's the criterion against which we must evaluate him, right? Like we have no access to the interiority of his mind, so I treat him like I treat any other public figure, right? Like just try to see what the words mean, and then like form an opinion about them. And in a lot of the cases with like his utterances, like I just like can't understand how it could have come to this, right? Like could he not? Like if every if anything he's saying is true, like you would expect he would simply call the guy who runs Twitter and, like, ask, because he's gonna buy it, presumably, right? And then he would, like, if he was sincere, he would seem, I think he would get a very simple answer, right? But he seems not to do those things, and I can't tell if it's because he's being actively deceptive or, like, just the idea is, like, he can't process this information. And both seem pretty crazy to me because he seems to have demonstrated remarkable competence. Right. In other do- in other domains of life, it's very hard. I kind of think that Elon Musk might be three people <laughs> tweeting under the account, and every day we get a different one. My theory is that he is a recklessly overconfident individual who also l- sticks with things and learns powerfully and quickly. So he starts off way off base. Like he knows zero about social networks. He knows nothing about bot calculation, but he's extremely confident that he does. And if you were to give him, like, if you were to give him the reins of Twitter, you know, two or three years from now, I think he'd be doing an excellent job. But in the beginning, I don't know. No I'm, idea much, what he's doing. I'm much more skeptical. I think that has worked out for him in some cases. I think when the field is quite narrow, right? Like, it's worked well for rocketry and car making, but it's worked terribly for like the tunnel boring thing. For domains where it seems like the main juice to be applied is like an understanding of like public policy and society, it seems like he's really ill-equipped. And I think. Twitter is like the ultimate end boss of that type of challenge. And I think Elon Musk is very, like his suite of like executive skills seem very poorly suited. Society, yeah, but public policy, I mean, starting a car manufacturer or like a space company is like a. Dude, he's had like 10 years to realize that the tunnel boring idea (laughs) is terrible. He's, he's, I don't know how many cycles he needs to put on it or whatever, but he keeps tweeting about how great it is. And every single time, like, every urbanist in the country spells out, like, number by number why this is a horrible idea to build tunnels for cars to drive individuals through as a way of dodging traffic. Like, it's crazy. Like, it literally, like, if you spent, like, an hour just (laughs) learning about urban infrastructure, you would conclude that this is probably not the best (laughs) use of, like, the public's dollars, right? And he's proposing that the public expend dollars to build these tunnels for his cars, which is just absurd. Like I don't know it, anything about cars. I don't know anything about space. I don't know anything about tunnels. But I do know a decent amount about social networks, bots, spammers. We get a ridiculous amount of spammers on indie hackers. So it's like the, one I'm of the sure. few domains where Elon will tweet things, and I can actually like look at his logic and say, I know enough about this domain to know whether he's full of shit or not. And with the bots, it's like absolutely like he's completely wrong. The uh, Twitter CEO, did you see Parag's like thread about why it's five percent? And how people outside the company don't actually know what the monthly daily active users are. Yeah, I mean, obviously, only the people on the inside. Would right, because right? like only people. <laughs> so Twitter says five percent or fewer of our monthly daily active users are actually bots, are spam. And Elon contracted with like some other, I guess, analyst companies. Rand Fishkin actually did a long blog post that I think Elon's referencing, where he's like concluded that twenty percent of the active. Twitter accounts that they found at least twenty percent are bots. Yeah, it says it says lower limit. It's a lower 20%. limit. They have a conservative estimate, right? And I read through his post and I like his methodology, but there's like a central yeah, but flaw. Like not the active. Yes, users exactly. Or it's whatever. a central flaw in that all the active users yeah. they count are people who have tweeted at least once in the last ninety days. 
And having run a social network, I can tell you the vast majority of users don't post. I guarantee you the vast majority of active users on Twitter don't tweet. And so there's probably four or five times as many people who are active on Twitter than they're even counting in these analyses, which means if you yeah, take that 20 number, 20% number and divide it by four or five, you're exactly what the Twitter figure says, which is like, yeah, 5% of our active users are spammers, which is exactly accurate. Yeah. And like, that should be pretty easy to explain to somebody of Elon Musk's intelligence. So it is kind of mysterious, like why nobody has explained this to him. Not to mention, he he keeps referencing this like eyeball test. I mean, set set aside... I mean, his intuition was tripped up before he said, let's investigate. And he's, you know, his intuition has repeatedly been some form of, well, just look, just, you know, when I make po when I make tweets, when other big, you know, big accounts make tweets, well, it's like if there were only 5% of the, of the active user base were spammers, where would they spam? They would spam like the top 5% of, of yeah, accounts, yeah. right? And they would sort of over-represent I, I believe Prague that it's only 5%, and I bet that all 5% of them are devoted wholly to spamming Elon, <laughs> to Musk. Elon Musk. All right, what do you think about the ethics of, of his like goals for Twitter, of basically creating... I don't even understand. I assume he's lying. Like, or well, I, I mean, there's I like, it's a pretty like, common ethical his... position that like, okay, we, we, we believe that like speech is better, the internet's a better place if we don't censor people with offensive opinions and we you know have twitter as much as possible represent you know the entire population of the country or earth rather than you know only people who don't have extreme positions and so he wants it to be sort of a public towns town square i assume he would still ban people who harass each other but he wouldn't ban people who are like tweeting about you know vaccines or fake etc what do you what do you think about that I think we should ban way more people than we're banning. <laughs> I don't know, man. Like the it's look, it's a coherent ethical philosophy. It's really look. One thing I learned from actually doing philosophy in college is impossible to evaluate moral philosophies against each other, right? Like individual humans just have value vectors for like values they prioritize over others, and then they choose the philosophy that best suits them. As a result, I personally do not think that the ethical like framework that prioritizes like unfettered speech as the primary virtue in society is the best one <laughs> like unfettered speech is nice but like it's not that nice like there are other things that are nicer like not getting shot like so <laughs> i don't love his plan i also think he has no fucking clue like i think I think if he were actually on the inside and had been running Twitter for six months, if he showed up and like didn't make any changes for a little bit and just like got to know how it's all going and like embedded himself in the moderation teams for a while, I think his opinion would pretty quickly change because I don't know. I definitely have friends who have worked as content moderators. And let me tell you, the experience really does change what you think yeah, of course. to be allowed or not. Of course, some shit is just beyond the pale. It is, it is pretty dark out there, the stuff people say. And once you start saying things like, yeah, okay, like we can censor videos where the cartels behead people in Mexico and post them on Facebook video. Like, it's a pretty, I mean, where do you where go? Do you like, draw the line? How do you decide where to, it's yeah. very hard to have a coherent ethical position on where objectively true it is that you should draw the line. Right? The amazing and thing think... about running Indie Hackers, which is a social network in its own right, yet it has a very specific direction, is like, we've dealt with this, right, Cortland? Very small amounts, luckily. Like, like, really small amounts. And But we have like the 
we have the the kryptonite to this, which is when anyone gets into this back and forth, like, oh, there's a guy that kind of said this conservative opinion. We think we should ban that. Or, oh, there's someone that sort of did the woke opinion or whatever. We're just we like- We banned both like, parties. No, what right. happened, the only like, time we've really had to deal with this, maybe two or three times, is number one in situations where somebody is saying, like two co-founders are fighting and one person makes a post on indie hackers and somebody else wants it taken down. So people basically going through us and attempt to censor someone else publicizing a message they don't want to get out. That happens constantly. And then the more rare thing was during the 2020 sort of Black Lives Matter uh, protests, like the sort of like groundswell, when there was a lot of companies that were doing um, promotions in support of this or like shutting down or doing various things. And like people were so passionate about this issue that they were emailing us and messaging us and basically fighting with each other on the forum about what should be allowed and what shouldn't be allowed on indie hackers. And then they were both sides were sort of looking to us to silence the other side. And so I think the second you're in charge of any sort of social network, you have a lot of power. And the second you have a lot of power and people are fighting with each other, they're going to appeal to you to basically become a tool for their side against the other side. And that's the shitty position you have to be in if you run any sort of social network. Indie Hackers is a... Well, you say shitty, I say privilege. It's privilege. You get to choose a side. Did you see the... And create an outcome in society. Well, the, ex, the CEO of uh, Reddit, Ishan Wong, the ex-CEO of Reddit, like, tweeted about this. He was like, people, people, people both believe, like on both sides, believe that the platform owners are conspiring against them. But the actual feeling the platform owners have is, I wish you guys would resolve your shitty little fights so we could go back to doing the things that we're doing. We want to do because yeah. we don't want to Please adjudicate. Allow your... us to keep making money without right. Any I don't. The last thing I want to do on any hackers is like resolve it. Like the very first time this happened. If only you political activists would just stop being activists on our No, no, platform. continue being activists. Just, like, just don't look to me to become your activist. Don't, don't look to me to become your activist about this yeah. issue I don't care about. Reddit was really happy when no one really suspected them for incubating Donald Trump, right? Like, it was nice when, like, the Donald was just, like, a fringe subreddit with, like, no consequences whatsoever. If we could have all just kept believing that was the case, that'd have been really nice for Sean Wong. I don't think I don't think Sean Wong was happy about that. I don't think Zuckerberg was happy about Facebook's role. He wasn't unhappy en enough to like independently of activism from users to do literally anything about it. Well, that's the thing. So like I don't know. I think activists are correct to appeal to the institutions that hold the reign of power in order for them to clarify what their values are and goals as a platform are in the continued operation of their business. And I think it's also perfectly reasonable. This is a thing I see less frequently. I think it's also perfectly reasonable for platforms to choose a side, though very Agreed. infrequently you would do you would see. Like no one ever does it. And I think that's like just cowardly. They should just choose sides. Like I, think I mean they've chosen the side. <laughs> the side is maximize our income. <laughs> and the reason the the yeah. ideal way to maximize your income is to appear to not have chosen a side so you can collect as many users as possible. So I wouldn't say it's cowardly, I would and say it's self-serving. I, I want to I'll give you Sean some credit. I think they did clarify, like they began to increasingly clarify where the line is for everyone, right? Like what behaviors you're allowed to encourage or not. But I don't know, like all this sounds like, I don't know how to put it, like quintessentially unavoidable. Like if your goal is to monetize the instinct that humans have for socializing with each other, then I think it is your duty to be there for when the socializing inevitably results. So, but then this goes full circle, I think, back to what you said, Vincent, which is, oh, hey, I took philosophy. Anyone who takes philosophy and, and thinks about the ethics of it knows that, look, 
the the reality is you just have a bunch of people with their own their their own opinions sort of working in reverse to find the philosophy that best best fits that so if you find yourself at the top basically trying to create a civil society where everyone's having a conversation everyone's moving forward but like you sort of split the difference for the greater good it ends up being that whatever your affirmative stance is is sort of a somewhere in the sort of free speechy direction it would seem like it's you have to figure out the lines but you have to sort of allow that everyone, you know, everyone who has an opinion, it doesn't necessarily have the right opinion. I agree with if that is your, I think the business owner fundamentally has to use their value metric to determine like what the best thing to do with the platform. And, and if that is truly what you feel that like the, you know, civil discourse is the most important like virtue that your platform creates above all else, then yeah, I understand that your behavior might look like that. But like if you had slightly different values, right? Like, if one of your values, for instance, included, it would be pretty, like, I don't know. I think this is a totally morally coherent position to have. Like, imagine it's 2015 and you think, you know what would be really disastrous, like, for the world, for, like, 8 billion humans, is if Donald Trump was elected president. And, like, that whatever small step that we took, let me put it this way. Like, if Reddit had banned the Donald it would be like the most important thing that that company has ever done or had hypothetically ever done in its entire existence and for the world. Like every good that the platform has done independently of that would be completely eclipsed by them merely having prevented like Donald Trump from ascending to the presidency. So yeah, they continued to promote civil discourse. But again, their, sure their is priority is not benefits. doing good for the world. The priority is making yeah, exactly. Reddit money, With which the business, means not losing a half yeah, of their users. The business owner has, has to choose what their value yeah. metric is. And I think nakedly, if it is to make money, they should feel free yeah. saying so. And that's why you see the behavior that they do. But like we as business owners or as individuals are free to choose any particular value metric. And I guess what I'm saying is like, I would like to see more of platforms acting according to like the actual values held by those who run the company. And I guess I'm shooting my own argument in the foot from before about how one ought to think of a business solely as a money-making venture. And you're right, there are knock-on benefits to owning a business. And I think this this is one of them, right? That you you do like if you're the sole owner especially you affect people you can you can affirm values much more coherently and directly than you can if like you run a publicly owned your business or whatever actually exists in the world it has an impact on you your employees your relatives friends families your community your customers your suppliers and you have the ability to decide how you're going to affect them and i think that that is not only uh an important responsibility but also like if you think about it carefully, an enjoyable and a privileged one to have. So I strongly encourage people who start businesses to think a little bit more than just about the money aspect. But in the early days, figure out the money so your business doesn't die. Yeah, I meant it mostly as like a decision-making criteria for like, ought you to do right. it or not. Yeah, right? it's a necessity so you know, you, that you can make money. You also tacitly just endorsed Trump's truth social, I want to point out. <laughs> yeah. I like this idea. You should go to I truth. like these debates. I'm I'm happy for truth social to exist because it gives cover for like Twitter to like have banned him. You know what I mean? Yep. Like it's fine. If you really like Donald Trump, you could just use his fucking app. You can subscribe to his RSS you feed of insane all thoughts nonstop. Other people. <laughs> all right, Vincent, yeah. thanks for coming on the show. I like this idea. We should do more debates, more gossip, more bullshit. You should come on and join us. Well, look, hey, if anyone lives in SF and wants to hang out, 
I'm around, you know, like I got all free time. Just DM me, baby. All right. You're here. If you're NSF, hit up Vincent. I don't know. What's your email yeah. address? How do people find you? They'll figure it out. If they can't figure it out, then like, I don't want to <laughs> hang out, you know? Like, all right. Till next time. Yeah.